0: The detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death.
1: Good morning, Merry Christmas, trust that you've enjoyed your Christmas celebration this year, that you had some good times of worship, that you had good times with family and friends, that someone gave you something that you actually liked. You can tell an awful lot about a person by the kind of gift that they ask for, you can tell an awful lot about the kind of person someone is by the things that they think other people would like went to a couple white elephant gift exchanges this year. And, and these are always fascinating, to, just, just to sort of sit back and watch what happens. These were the nice kinds. So there was a fairly decent dollar amount that we were supposed to spend, supposed to bring something, a good gift. But it's really quickly obvious that not what, that not the things that some people think are good gifts are not what everybody else necessarily thinks are good gifts. And so there's inevitably, inevitably that moment when someone unwraps something and, and they do that frozen smile kind of thing. You know what that looks like where, where it, it, it just gets fixed there. It doesn't really get up to the rest of the person's face. They're being polite, but they've just unwrapped something that they could not imagine ever getting for themselves, and they have no idea what to do with it now. Or there's that time where someone unwraps and they look puzzled and they say, what is it? And sometimes if you're a little snarky like, I am you you sit there and you think to yourself who brought that what 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 were they thinking and sometimes if you're thinking like that you get caught because someone will unwrap something you think nobody wants that and they get all excited and they think this is just a great gift or somebody starts to steal that gift and it starts going all around the room and you you still don't want it but in that moment you realize other people clearly do And those are times where you learn about people. I'm no longer playing the game at that point. I'm now understanding a little bit more about the people that I'm in the room with. And, And you learn what they like. But you learn through what they like. You see their personality. And you see their inside nature. And it comes through in the kinds of things that they want and the kind of things that they value. And you realize very quickly that that's not only true of us as humans. It's also true of God. Specifically, it's true of Jesus. The thing that he is most looking forward to, the gift that he thinks tops all other gifts, says a great deal about who he is and what he's like. And as you see what it is that he wants, it lets you then figure out whether or not you're on the same page with him. Whether the kinds of things he wants are the kind of things that you want, or if you look at what he's planning, you think, nobody wants that. What are you thinking? Now just to remind us where we've been through Advent, we've been watching how Jesus responds to humanity in various time periods. And the time periods that we've been looking at are the ones that mark what we call redemptive history. That's the history of God's interactions with humanity as he brings people to himself. And so we've broken this time period up into creation, into humanity's fall into sin, into redemption, and then into restoration. And so we've seen that in creation, God has created you in joy for joy. But that in the fall into sin, we've rejected his joy because we've rejected him. And we learned that he does not reject us in that moment. Instead, we've seen that he has redeemed us for joy. We've seen that he will disrupt our lives when we pursue joy alternatives in order to call us back to joy. We've seen that he comes bringing light and life to the joyless. And so today we're going to look at this last period of time in human history, the one that we call the restoration. This is when God will remake the world so that it is forever the joyful world that he intends it to be. This is the present that Jesus brings to the party. It's the new creation. It's the restoration of all things. This is the present that some people think is so good, they can't believe (laughs) that Jesus is giving it. They absolutely love it. But it's the present that other people don't love. They don't want it. And to understand how some people can love it while other people want nothing to do with it, we're gonna look at three things this morning. First, we need to ask, what is this new creation like? What goes into it? Second, we need to see that there really are reasons why you might not want anything to do with it, that it's possible to have concerns about this new creation, and then third, We'll think about how you deal with those concerns if you find some of them in yourself. So what the new creation is like, why you might not want it, and how you deal with your concerns if, that, if you find that in yourself. So first, what is this new creation like? Four things that we can see in the passage that stand out. Number one, it's physical. Very, very physical. Verse one, it's a new heaven and a new earth. And it's the new earth that is our home. Our long-term place is not in heaven, but verse 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, God's bride, comes down out of heaven down to earth. We don't spend eternity in heaven. We have sometimes that idea that we're going to be disembodied spirits floating on clouds. That's not our future. It's not where we belong. It's true that when we die on this earth, our spirits and our bodies are separated, that our spirit goes to be with Jesus in heaven, and that as Paul says in Philippians, that's better than being here apart from him. But then scripture goes on to say that's not as good as it gets, which sounds a little weird. How can it not be as good as it gets to be with Jesus? There's something better coming, and that is when our spirit and our bodies are reunited and we live with Jesus in a very real physical existence. The Christian hope is not that somehow we will escape the body, The Christian hope is that we will not be disembodied spirits. Scripture does not see the body as the prison house of the soul. Instead, Scripture sees the physical reality as good. God made the first physical world, including us, and said it was good. That there's nothing wrong with being a physical being. It's good to be a bodied soul. And so our hope in the future is that we're going to live physically again. We're going to live in a renewed body. We'll live in a body that is in perfect harmony with our spirit. It's going to be a body that we actually like living in, not one that makes us uncomfortable, not one that you know, feels like it doesn't quite fit the way that we'd really like it to. And that's good news for those of us who struggle with our bodies, who don't feel like our body necessarily aligns with who we think we are, who don't feel like our bodies let us do everything that we want to do, One day, that mismatch that many of us feel, one day that mismatch is just going to be gone. You will have a body that suits you perfectly. It's going to be a body that you actually like having. And we're going to live in those very real bodies on a very real solid world that we like living in. One that is not simply an extension of this present one, but a transformation of this one. One that is similar to this world and yet far, far better. In the same way that our bodies will be similar, but far, far better. A world where there's going to be real stuff to do. Let's just be really basic. There'll be food to eat again. Food that you're actually going to like. Food that will have more tastes and more flavors than you have yet imagined. You watch Jesus when he resurrects from the dead in his new body, the body that fits the new creation, and he eats. We're going to eat. We're going to spend eternity eating. It's going to be a world full of colors, maybe ones that we haven't yet seen, full of sounds, smells, aromas, things to feel. It's going to be a world in which there are things to do, places to go, places to explore, things to see, adventures still to have. We're going to do real things, build things, create things, make things, paint things, sculpt things, learn things. There's going to be books to read books to write, instruments to play, sports to compete in again. It's going to be a world that is even more solid and more real than this present one. It's going to be a world that you're going to love investigating and exploring. And secondly, it's going to be a world that you don't explore by yourself and say, we're going to do it together. We're going to live this new life with each other. Again, you go back to what comes down out of heaven. It's not a handful of individual persons that then just sort of get spread across the landscape. It's a whole city. It's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Not a city like we're used to here on earth, not one that copies the city of Babel, the tower that humanity builds to try to invade heaven. It's a different kind of city. This is one that comes down from heaven. This is God's gift to the earth of his people a gift of so many people, it takes a city to have them all down. And it's not a little city. You, the city gets measured in verse 16, and you discover that this city is 1,400 miles on each side. Now, just to sort of give you a little reference point, if you drive from New York City down to, Florida, to Miami, Florida, that's not yet 1,400 miles. It's an absolutely enormous city that God has planned. Yes, that measurement is most likely figurative, but it's a figure that tells you what? That this new earth is going to be packed with people. That we're going to live with others. And we're going to enjoy that experience of living with others. That the things that we do and experience will be done with each other. And that we're going to share those things with each other. And that's important because there's a dimension of enjoying something that you miss out on Unless you can share it. You ever been stunned by a sunrise? Or overwhelmed by a concert? Seen an incredible sporting event kind of activity? Or, or gone to a movie or play that, that, that moved you? What did you feel like you just had to do in that moment? Didn't you reach out and try to share it with somebody? Oh, you have to see this play! And you call people to come see the instant replay. You tell people about it. You try to get them to have that experience. So you've got to go see this movie. You have to have this concert experience. You have to go to this restaurant. What happens when you do that? Your enjoyment doesn't decrease. It what? It increases. It gets better. Your experience is not diminished by sharing it. Your experience actually is enhanced by sharing it, unless the other person doesn't get it. And then you feel frustrated. Why are you frustrated? Because it's just too good to keep to yourself. You really want somebody else to have the same kind of experience. You want to connect with them over this. That frustration won't happen in the new creation. You're going to share, and the other person will get it. They'll get you. If not, immediately you'll be happy you keep going back and forth until they do get you. And no one's going to stalk off unhappy. The experience that was so good for you will become that much greater because there will now be this huge community that you share life with. Why will this world and this community be so good? Because third, verse one, the sea was no more. Which to our ears sounds like an odd thing to say. The sea was no more. What, what, why? It doesn't mean that there won't be any large bodies of water on the planet. It means that everything that the sea represents in the book of Revelation is going to be gone. And so the origin of cosmic evil, the sea in the book of Revelation, the origin of cosmic evil, that'll be gone. The unbelieving rebellious nations who persecute God's people, they'll be gone. The place of the dead will be gone the source of the inhuman spiritual monsters that challenge God will be gone. Everything that has ever set itself against God, everything that's ever set itself against his purposes and against his people, all of that will be gone. Gone never to return. Last line of verse 4, for the former things have passed away. Everything that ruined life, everything that makes life miserable on this planet will have passed away. There's going to be nothing anymore to taint your experience in any way. Nothing that makes you uncomfortable personally in your body. Nothing that ruins your enjoyment of this new creation. And nothing that breaks your relationships ever again. Can you you even imagine what that'll be like? Nothing will ever make you suspicious of anyone again. Nothing will ever make you think, man, I... I wish I hadn't said that. Nothing's going to make you wonder, what, what, what did he mean by that? Are she and I okay? Nothing like that ever again. Because everything that caused e- causes evil will be gone. And along forth with evil being gone, so will every kind of suffering. Verse 4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know that experience that you've had when something sad happens to you? The immediate sting and the pain of that sadness drops, but if you want to, you can recall it back to your mind, can't you? You can let yourself live in it again, and as you live in it again, the sadness comes back. That's going to change. God says he'll wipe away every tear from your eyes. That there won't be anything left in you or left in your experience from the past that will cause sadness ever again. Think, how does that work? (laughs) Is that going to be sort of like a, a memory wipe? I understand I'm speculating here. But I'm inclined to say no. It won't be like that. What little we know of that life, the glimpse that we get of Jesus after he rises from the dead, after he has that new resurrected body, the little that we see of him is that he still remembers his former life. And he still remembers things that could make him sad. He remembers Peter's denial of him. He has scars from wounds that he receives. He knows how he got those scars. He knows what those wounds mean to other people, that they see them, that they touch them. He knows people from his past life. Mary recognizes the disciples. He knows the past, which means that we should have some expectation that we'll have some sense of the past too. Scripture tells us in 1 John that when we see him, it'll be because we are like him. Like him, and yet God says we'll have no tears. So even what you do remember from this life will not cause you any grief, because God's going to see to it that it doesn't. You will not feel the pain of having been rejected by someone. You won't feel the sting or the regret from anything that you've done. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. He'll take care of the suffering that you've experienced in the past, and he promises that nothing new will happen in the future to cause any new suffering. Nothing's ever going to break into your life and ruin again what you were building. Ruin the game that you were playing. Ruin the adventure that you were on. Ruin the relationship that you were enjoying. Nothing from the past will reach out to crush you. Nothing from the future will create sadness either. On this earth, this old created earth, we have the ability to ease people's sufferings. We have the ability and the obligation. But we don't have the ability to eliminate suffering. In order to eliminate suffering, you have to change the fundamental nature of this world, and that is exactly what God intends. And so the new world that he creates undoes the hurt of the old world, and the new world that he creates won't allow any hurt to be created. The former things have passed away. That's point number one. That's what the new creation will be like. A real physical world filled with community, with nothing that opposes God and nothing that brings suffering. How could you not want that? Point two, here's how. None of these blessings exist independently. None of them have a life of their own. They only exist because of the active involvement of God bringing them about. A God who, verse 3, makes his presence among his people very clearly felt. Felt so much that you know, verse 1, that the new heaven and the new earth don't create themselves. Verse 2, that the new Jerusalem that comes down does not prepare itself. Verse 4, that tears don't wipe themselves away, that death does not die on its own. Verse 5, that all things don't make themselves new. Verse 6, the thirsty... Don't give themselves water to drink. All of those good things happen because God makes them happen. And so all of the goodness that we have just unpacked goes back to a single source. They all flow from him. They're an extension of him. That world only comes about because God clearly and tangibly, actively brings it about. That means that you're only going to like those things if you like him, if you don't like him, you won't like the world that he creates either. And here's where the tension comes in this morning for us. Because every single one of us, as we read through Scripture, find things that are hard for us to like. We find things in the Scripture that God is okay with. That That's the weak way to say it. He's more than okay with it. We find things in Scripture that God approves of But there are things that we don't necessarily like. Things like verse 8 here the reality that in the future there will be a lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And that lake will be the home of those people who are not part of the New Jerusalem. Somehow there's going to be a place of torment outside of the new creation. It's outside the new creation because there's nothing in the new creation to create mourning or pain. But somewhere, those who wanted nothing to do with God still exist, and their existence is best described as a second ongoing death. It's not a death that is over and done, but it's an eternal separation from the source of life. When you put it that way, it doesn't sound so bad until you realize you and I were made for life, and therefore to be separated from life from the source of life, is going to be so painful, it will literally feel like you're burning constantly. And so the same passage that hints at an unspeakably glorious future for some also paints an unimaginably hideous future for others. And the same passage says that God is behind both plans. So to embrace the God who creates the new heavens and the new earth, you also have to embrace the God who creates a place that is best described as a lake of fire. Now how comfortable are you with that? Because God's people are. You get a taste of that comfort in God's people just a few chapters earlier in chapter 19. God is describing there how he will destroy the rich and the powerful of this world who have opposed him so that they never rise again. And we learn there that God's people rejoice when he does that. They rejoice when wickedness is destroyed. Not only does wickedness, not only is wickedness an affront to God, it's also offensive to them. Are you entirely comfortable with that? Does that fit into the way that you've been taught to think about people, to think that some people are wicked, that you need to be merciful to them, that to long for them to be saved, to not treat them like enemies, to go out of your way, to give them a taste of the goodness of God. But if they refuse to humble themselves and ask the Lord for his pardon, that it's right for them to be eternally destroyed. Do you like that? Do you like that about your God? Or do you struggle with that? Read the scripture and you quickly find that God's been telling you this about himself for a very long time. God believes that Sodom and Gomorrah should have been destroyed with fire, that it was good and right to do so. That he believes the Israelites should have killed off all the Canaanites living in the land that the Israelites inherited from him. That it was right for them to possess those cities and fields that they found there. That those are small tastes of how God thinks and of what he has planned. Small tastes that lead you to the lake of fire. Read the scripture and you will find things there that God values that will rub you the wrong way. That's true of every person who reads scripture. We all come to scripture with our own ideas, our own beliefs of what is right and wrong things that we have thought ourselves, things that our society has helped us learn. And so we quickly find that Scripture challenges many of those beliefs. Every person, every society finds things in Scripture that offend us, things that don't make sense to the way that we think or the way that we've been taught to think, things like God's eternal judgment or things like God created us male and female. And that he thinks that's a good thing. That male and female are not simply social constructions. But that in a very important sense, God has built both maleness and femaleness into his world as an extension of himself. That we need both male and female in order to image him correctly. That there's a goodness to both. But they are not interchangeable. That while God is more nurturing than any person has ever been, While he does at times use feminine metaphors to describe himself, he still insists that we address him only as father, never as mother. He insists that the church is his bride, never his groom. That somehow maleness and femaleness is created by him, not created by us. And that it is more than simple biology. That's in scripture. You can't get around that. Or he says things that we can, like, we can only ever express our sexuality in one narrowly defined way. That it can only ever be between one man and one woman within the context of a committed marriage. Or he says things that that there are roles for us as men and women that are more than culturally defined. That while we are 100% equal in worth and value, while both sexes need each other in order to be whole, whether we're married or not, that we have complementary roles. And that's true both in our marriages and in our churches. Read Scripture, and you will be offended. You will find things over and over that you don't like. Things that you'll try to argue away, things you'll try to skip over real quickly, things that you'll just try to ignore. Things that I've tried to argue away and ignore. It's been very helpful for me as I wrestle with things I don't like to realize that that's always been true. That it was true even of the people who lived in the same time periods when scripture was originally written. That no one has ever entirely been comfortable with what they were hearing that God's Word challenges every single person, challenges individual beliefs and assumptions, challenges societal beliefs and assumptions, just like it challenges me. We may feel challenged by different things in different periods of time in different social locations, but no one's ever felt completely comfortable with everything that you find in Scripture. No society has ever felt comfortable with everything you find in Scripture. Let me just take a a real brief aside. This is actually one of those things that helps convince you this really is the Word of God. Because if it was something that human authors made up, you would expect it to fit within at least one culture. That there would be some place where it was perfectly at home in some time, in some place, and it's never been. When you study scripture, when you take it seriously, not just when you read it real quickly, You discover that it consistently subverted elements in every culture that it addressed. That it challenged the norms of every culture, even when it was written. In the same way that it continues to do so today. That's exactly what you would expect if Scripture is what it claims to be. That it is the word of God that expresses him that builds the kind of culture that he would build. Scripture teaches us that we've all drifted from him. So what should we expect to find in Scripture? We should expect to find that God thinks in ways that are not simply different from the way that we think. But we should expect to find ways that God thinks that we don't like. Things that we think are wrong. Things that we can't imagine any right-thinking person thinking. And that's why there are people who will not want anything to do with the new earth that God creates. Because our God will take the things that he considers best and right and he will build them into this new world that is an extension of himself. That world will be different from this one, but it will still perfectly express him. And there will be people who want nothing to do with that world because they will want nothing to do with him. You get a hint of that in chapter 16 in Revelation. In that chapter, God is judging humanity's sin. He's pouring out various plagues on people. And we're told twice, in verses 9 to 11, that people recognized the source of those plagues, that they knew it was God. And knowing that, they did not come to him humbly, seeking his forgiveness. Instead, they hated him. So much that at one point, verse 10, they gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Think about that. They recognized the source of their pain. They recognized what God was doing, that He was judging them for what they had done, and they did not repent. They could have. They understood what judgment meant. They saw God clearly, but they didn't want him. They didn't want a God that would judge them for the things they had done. They didn't adjust themselves to somehow be in sync with him, to align their likes and dislikes with his. They instead, they clung to what they were doing, cursed him instead. Anyone who responds to God that way on this earth won't want anything to do with him. In a new one. See the lake of fire is not filled with people who are longing to get out. People who want to repent but they're just not allowed to. People who really do want what God offers but they made a few bad decisions along the way. That's not what's happening. Instead it's filled with people who don't want to repent. Who want nothing to do with the God that they've seen who want to be as far from this God's presence as they possibly can be. People who get exactly what they've wanted. They are completely cut off from the source of all goodness and comfort. So point one, the new creation will be amazing. But point two, not everybody's going to want to live there since it will fully express who God is. So point three, how do you deal with that conflict? when you see it inside of yourself? How do you get to a place where you want to share a world with a God who doesn't always agree with you? Especially when he disagrees on things that are very important to you. What do you do? You go down to verse 6, and you zero in on when Jesus says, It is done. Now, in this context, that means two things. It means that God has fully kept his promise to destroy all his enemies. That's all done now. And secondly, that everything needed to save his people is also all done now. What does that mean? It means that in that new world, there will be nothing in you that will be at odds with him. Nothing in you that will shy away from him. Nothing that will be suspicious of him. It means that in that world, you will be perfectly aligned with him. That in that world, you'll be glad to be in harmony with him. Even if you're not too sure about that now. That will be true. But how do you get to the place now where you want it to be true? Why would you want to line up with a God who holds values that you're not sure of? This is very simple. It's because he's never hurt you. He's never hurt you, and you know it. Think about it this way. You disagree with him over things that he values. You think your sense of what is and is not good is superior to his. That you would do things differently if you were making the world. That you would do things, let's be frank, better if you were making the world. You think like that. I think like that. And God does not crush you for it. He crushes himself. If you've read of Jesus' death and resurrection, you know that he's already said it is done long before Revelation 21 ever comes along. That on the cross, he said, it is finished. At that time, it is finished meant that he completely paid for everything that you've ever done wrong, including being uneasy with things you find in scripture about him, including judging him for what he values. He has already chosen not to hurt you for disagreeing with him. He chose instead to take that hurt on himself. Chose to absorb your punishment for every place where you have come across something in Scripture and said to yourself, that's dumb. I don't buy that. That's horrible. I don't agree. God could not really be like that. I'm just going to ignore that. I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. He would make you pay for those times. He paid for them himself. Why would you want to be with him when he disagrees with you? There is no better person to be in a disagreement with. He doesn't give in to you, doesn't become what you want him to be, doesn't change what he knows is best for you just because you don't like it. But he doesn't hold himself back from you either. He bends himself around you Absorbing the consequences of how you approach him, not hurting you. Making a way for you to live with him. Why would you want to be with him? Why not? You're never going to get a better offer anywhere. From anyone. And he did all of that. Why? Because what he is longing for is to be with you. That's his desire. That's what drives him. See, this new creation is not simply about a world... Uh, which is a playground for you and for the rest of whoever lives there. This new world is a place, verse 3, where God can now dwell with his people, where he can live with them. God is not planning to live in some kind of standoffish, remote, long-distant kind of way with you. He's planning to dwell with you as a husband and a wife dwell together. The new Jerusalem is prepared as a bride for him. You and God living in close intimacy, committed contact with each other, partners together, partners in exploring this new world, in experiencing it, in building this new world. Verse 3 could have read very differently. It could could have read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is in the new heaven. That's kind of what you expect when you disagree with somebody, that they would say, Look, I'm just going to stay here. You can be there. God could have said that, could have been content with that kind of relationship. Instead, it says, now the dwelling place of God is with men, with his people, with them where they are. We're not going to simply enjoy this new world on our own and with each other. We're going to enjoy it with him, which means we're going to enjoy him, including all the things about him that give you pause right now. And he's working overtime to make sure that you enjoy him. Verse 2. You will be prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Prepared to live with him. Thrilled at the prospect. Not that you prepare yourself, that you're going to do the best you can to get your head where you think it needs to be. Instead, you can relax. The bride is prepared. (laughs) Prepared by another. Prepared by him. This is a God who understands that we struggle with him. And so his plan is not simply to eradicate evil outside of us that causes problems for us. His plan is to eradicate evil inside of us that causes problems for us. It's part of what he's doing now in all of his people, preparing us to be with him, shaping us now in a way that gets us ready to be with him. And so you are now becoming someone who loves what he loves. Verse 7, you're now a member of his family. Someone who grows up to share his values. Someone who learns to see the wisdom of what he values, the goodness of how he thinks. You're not being brainwashed, convinced of something against your will, convinced of something that you would hate if you had a choice. Instead, growing up in his family, being prepared to be his part, means that you're growing to see the world the way it really is. And the more that you see of it, the more that you see how good he is in how he thinks about it. You're seeing what you haven't seen before. You're seeing what sin and your society have kept you from seeing. You ever had an epiphany? You know, that insight that happens like a blinding flash and all of a sudden uh, it goes to the heart of what you're thinking about? It's something that turns the brightness up on the world. That's something you want, right? An epiphany lets you see more of reality, not less. It doesn't close you off to life. Instead, it opens life up. It's a little bit like a paradigm shift. Paradigm shift when happens when the way that you look at the world suddenly changes dramatically. So much that your outlook on the world is forever changed. It can never go back. You can't see things any longer like you used to see them. You weren't brainwashed. Now you see things in a fuller way from within a larger context. A larger context than you did before. And you see now more clearly how things are related to each other. It's what happens when a child who used to believe in Santa learns that the source of their Christmas presents is their parents, not some red-suited gentleman. When that happens, that paradigm shift, they can never go back to the way that they used to think of life. Why? Their world just got bigger, not smaller. Their new perspective on life is more in line with the nature of reality than it was before, and it allows them to make better sense out of the data that they have of life. And so they see their parents now in a different light. Presents don't what? They don't randomly... Uh, impersonally appear from a complete stranger based on one's own performance, on whether one was good or not this last year. Instead, presents are what? They're connected to a person. They're personal. They're an extension of love. They tell the child something about their parents, something that they can trust. That's what God promises will be true for you. True for every single thing that you wrestle with him, About You're going to see the goodness of those things and you're going to be glad that you see it. You will be completely prepared to live with him for eternity, which is exactly what you're going to want. How then do you know if this is true for you? How do you know if you're one of those who are being prepared to be God's partner? Verse 6 again, here's the litmus test. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life, without payment it's to the thirsty it's the only requirement that god has for you to be with him in the new world he does not insist that you get all of your beliefs lined up correctly in order to be part of that new world he does not insist that here's the list of things that you now need to do in order to be part of that new world this is not a criterion that's based on thinking or doing it's based on something that is either part of you or it's not it's based on a feeling. It's based on whether or not you're thirsty. And so he asks Are you thirsty? Do you have a desire inside that you just can't quench on your own? Do you have a desire for him? A desire n- to not be sideways with him? A desire to be at peace with him? A desire for the kind of life that he's planned to have with his people? Do you have that kind of a longing? A feeling that this is all just way too good to miss out on and i can't stand the thought of missing out what is that that's being thirsty that's a sense that if this is the kind of world that he creates then he is too good to miss out on if you have any of that kind of thirst get excited because if you're thirsty he makes a promise If you're thirsty, he says, I will give you from the spring of the water of life and it'll cost you nothing. That's how you know you're being prepared. That's how you know that you're family. That's how you know that it is done means that you and he will be on the same page for all of eternity and that you're going to love it. It's that you're thirsty for life with him. If you're thirsty, he will satisfy you and you won't be sad about it. You won't feel like you've been missing out on something or that anything could be better because what you really want is to be with him in this new world that he makes. Lord Jesus, increase our thirst. Lord, take all of the wonders of this month and let them pale in comparison to the glory that we find in you, to the goodness that we find in you to the life that we find in you. Lord, give us thirst for you because you've promised that if we have that kind of thirst, you'll satisfy us. Lord, for those of us who have had that thirst, who have it now, who have some experience of you satisfying, Lord, we want to come back to you right now in song and let you know how much we appreciate you. In Jesus' name.